Well, we saw a couple of weeks ago in this chapter, beginning in verse 20, that the Pharisees came to Jesus with a question. That's how this whole discourse here begins. They wanted to know when the kingdom of God would come. They were looking for signs that would accompany their understanding of this long-anticipated event. And Jesus responded by telling them that the kingdom of God that they sought was already in their midst. Jesus had brought the kingdom of God in his incarnation, and rather it being this massive cataclysmic event that they were expecting, it was instead an inward reality. The kingdom Jesus brought was invisible, and it was transformational. And so after addressing their question, he turns to his disciples and he elaborates further on the nature of the kingdom. After his death and resurrection, Jesus is going to return at the end of the age, bringing the kingdom of God to earth in its fullness. With his first coming was its inauguration, and with his second coming, its consummation. The kingdom has come in the person of Jesus, and the kingdom is coming at the return of Jesus. We discuss this theological concept called the already and the not yet. The already not yet is a way to make sense of some of these realities that have already begun, but have not been brought to completion. And we discuss how this is true when it comes to various topics in the Bible, salvation, redemption, the kingdom, and even the last days. For example, you are saved in Christ, and yet you will be saved. You are redeemed presently, true, and yet you await your redemption. With the coming of the church age began the last days, and yet the last days are also a future event. And so it is with the kingdom. Jesus reigns over his kingdom today, and yet is coming again to reign over his kingdom in the future. It has begun, it is present, and it will one day be completed. And it is this second coming that all believers everywhere look forward to. It is the return of Christ that is the next great event on God's timetable. Jesus has come the first time to bring his kingdom to earth and redeem a people for his name. And he will come again to gather his people to be with him forever. And while this will be a day of great joy, it will also be a day of great sorrow. It will be joyful for those who love Christ and who know him and who desire to be with him. But it will also be a day of great anguish, as those rebels of the king who refused him are swept away in judgment. A day of wonder and a day of terror. This is what the remainder of Luke 17 describes, that great and terrible day. Now, rather than this being a new concept, it is a day that the Bible foretells many times, primarily through the prophets. 
Perhaps you've read through the Old Testament and you've seen the day of the Lord. This is a reference to this final day when Christ will return to bring salvation to his people and retribution to his enemies. Let me give you a few examples. The prophet Isaiah in 13.9 writes, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. A couple verses later, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 30, verse 3 says this, For the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Joel 2.11 The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And then that minor prophet Obadiah in verses 15 and 16, he says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So this is that day of wrath that the Jews were waiting for. Their Messiah was going to come and he was going to do this. And so they anticipated this this king who was going to have an army, who was going to overthrow the nations and make Israel the top of the heap and all of the nations would be subject to them. And yet they only had part of the picture. They didn't understand that before bringing judgment to the nations, this Messiah was going to bring salvation. In fact, a fascinating place where you see both of these is a prophecy that Isaiah gives, which is the text that Jesus reads when he's in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. This is many chapters ago, a long time ago we were there, but Jesus goes into his hometown synagogue and he reads a scroll of Isaiah, and you'll recognize this because this is the passage, this is the verse he reads. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to pray and proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops and he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all the eyes were on him. But what's fascinating about this is that he doesn't finish verse 2. Because the full verse reads, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. 
So he didn't read that verse because he hadn't come to do that yet. So the first coming of Christ brought the fulfillment of Isaiah, bringing God's favor to the nations. Jesus comes, he heals, he proclaims the kingdom, he looses those who are captive. But he stopped short because the rest of the verse was about his return. In his second coming, he brings God's vengeance. That's the time when God will right every wrong. He will bring perfect justice to the earth. He will pull out those weeds that are in his field. He will separate the sheep from the goats. It will be a day when heaven comes to earth to save and to condemn. A day when God is vindicated in the sight of both men and angels. And to describe what that day will be like, Jesus draws our attention to prior events when God brought judgment to the earth. That's what we find in Luke 17. These were historical events that happened in time, and yet they also act as a precursor to the great and final event which is to come. They are a type, they are a picture, they are a foretaste of the horror of what awaits those whom Christ comes to condemn. And so the first judgment of all he points to is undoubtedly the most well-known of all God's prior judgments, the global flood. So look with me in your Bibles at Luke 17, verse 26. Jesus says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now everyone knows about Noah and the flood. Sadly, in our day, it is often known only through heartwarming depictions in coloring books, or in some churches, that's the decor of their Sunday school room, where you have a happy cargo of assorted animals all in pairs, with a big, beautiful rainbow in the background, and everything is so happy and serene. Elephants with their trunks in the air. Giraffes standing above the rest. Panda bears and tigers and horses. And you know what's missing in all of those depictions? The point of the whole narrative. Millions of drowning people. That's what's missing. That's the point of the whole account. God's judgment that had come to earth. It wasn't about the animals. It was the largest human annihilation in world history. It was a purging of man from the earth, an event where God destroyed the entire population of the world. It was not a happy scene. It was not serene. 
There were bloated corpses floating on the surface of the water, I imagine. And this event becomes prototypical of the judgment that is to come. Human nature hasn't changed. God's nature hasn't changed. And so when man persists in his rebellion and he does not heed the warnings of God through Christ, he will all likewise perish, just like in the days of Noah. Now, we discover from other scriptures that besides building the ark, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So it took a hundred years for Noah and his sons to build this massive vessel. And over the course of those many years, Noah preached to the multitudes a message of repentance. I imagine it was similar to the message that we preach. It was a message about the holiness of God, the righteous standards of God, how man has broken God's laws and we fall short of God's standards, how God has provided a way to be saved. In Noah's day, it was the ark. And the ark becomes a type of Christ. All who enter in here will be saved. So Noah is building and he's preaching and you can imagine how much mockery he endured. You can imagine how many people hated and reviled him. And here he is in front of the greatest evangelistic tool imaginable. He's got this prop that's four stories tall and one and a half football fields long and he's preaching people to people a message of salvation. And Jesus says, when he returns, it's going to be like those days. So what were the days of Noah like? Here's a snapshot, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A few verses later, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So there was corruption, there was violence, there was sexual immorality, as was the scene right before these verses, where you have this human angelic intercourse trying to corrupt the image of God in man. And so their sin was so great that God determined that the only righteous option was to wipe out the human race entirely, with the exception of eight people. And Jesus connects this Old Testament event with his second coming. And he says, do you remember Noah and the flood? It's going to be like that. He continues in verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking buying and selling, planting and building. 
But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, this is probably the second most well-known judgment in the Bible, that of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember, it was the time of Abraham, and God told Abraham that he was going to destroy these cities, but Abraham's nephew Lot lived in Sodom, and so he starts to bargain with God, and he says, you're not going to, I mean, you wouldn't destroy them if there was 50 righteous people, would you? And God says, no, I won't do that if there's 50. And Abraham says, well, what about 40? No, I won't do it if there's 40. What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And God says, if he can find 10 righteous people in the whole twin cities, he won't destroy it at all. And then God sends his two angels down into Sodom in human form, and they enter into Lot's house. And we read that horrible scene in Genesis 19, starting in verse 4. It says, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now that's the Bible's way of describing gross behavior without using descriptive language. And then it says, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So these were perverse men in the days of Lot. And we're told they consisted of both young and old. All the people were depraved in their thinking and their desires. And these visitors, these angels in human form, become objects of their deviancy. And Lot calls them out and he tells them to not do something so wicked. And then in verse 9, But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. So Lot calls them out on their sinful behavior, and you know what their response was? Who are you to judge us? Who made you the judge? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Now, that wasn't their only sin in Sodom. Sin never happens in a vacuum. There's always connected associate sins that accompany those things. Ezekiel the prophet compare Sodom to Jerusalem in Ezekiel's day, and he calls these cities sisters because they were acting just as wickedly. So the people of God in Jerusalem were acting just as bad as the men of Sodom. And this is what he says about their day. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. He says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. 
She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So Sodom becomes prototypical of an evil city. It was a city full of food and prosperity and recreation and also full of homosexuality and sexual perversion. That's where we get the term sodomy from. And Lot warned them what they did was evil, but they did not listen. Back in Genesis 19, we read that the angels lead Lot and his wife and his daughters out of the city, and God rains down fire and brimstone upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this Old Testament account becomes a precursor to the great and final judgment that Jesus is bringing. And he says, you know what it's going to be like? It's going to be like the days of Lot. Now, someone unfamiliar with the Bible might say, wow, why is God such an angry God? Why is he so harsh and unloving? Why would he kill so many people in Noah's day, in Lot's day? And yet, that's the wrong question to be asking. If you read the news and you hear of a man who received seven consecutive life sentences, you don't say, wow, why is the judge so harsh? You say, what must have that man done to get such a harsh sentencing? And it's the same in this case. The penalty that God enacted in both of those cases was called justice. And his wrath in both of those cases was perfect and it was holy. We just have convoluted standards in our day. We don't think God should kill people. God, the one who made Saturn and humpback whales and mosquitoes and cells and brains, we don't think God should have the authority to kill people when he deems that it's just. But the problem is not with God, it is with us. Jesus continues speaking on the final day. He says, this is back in Luke 17, 31. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So if you remember the account, Lot's wife becomes the picture of the false believer. Much to Abraham's surprise, there were not ten righteous people in the city. There were only three. Lot and his two daughters. And God spares them from the destruction of the city by preparing their escape. But Lot's wife, what does she do? 
she looks back. And the reason she looks back is because she loved that wicked city. The reason she looks back is because her treasure was in that city. She identified with the culture and the ideologies of that city. And the Lord judged her. And this becomes the warning for believers on this great day of judgment that we are to not look back and long for those things which God hates. That we not look back to our lives and treasure this world and this world's system and this world's confused morality, secretly loving the things that God hates, secretly embracing the philosophies of this age which are against Christ. And in verse 33, Jesus gives one of his paradoxical sayings to describe this. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life, meaning you separate yourself from this world and the thinking and the philosophies of this world, you will keep your life. Now, let me make an observation in both of these cases of Noah and Lot that I think is extremely relevant to you. In neither of these cases, Noah and the global flood or the fire rained down on Sodom, does Jesus describe their sins in the way that we see them in Genesis? In other words, he doesn't say it's going to be like the days of Noah. In those days, the wickedness was great on the earth. He doesn't say it's going to be like Lot's day that was full of evil and immorality. He doesn't say that at all. But look what he does say in both of those cases. Verse 27. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. That's his descriptor of Noah's day. Verse 28, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Now, when Jesus describes both of these scenes that brought the terrible judgment of God, he does not describe their great sins. In fact, what he describes is quite ordinary. What he describes are things that you do. Eating, drinking, marrying, buying, selling, planting, building. This sounds a lot like your life and mine. Going to the supermarket, planting a garden, going out to dinner, attending a wedding, buying a piece of property, selling some items online. It's all so ordinary. It's all so much like your life. Why does Jesus describe it this way? 
Why doesn't he talk about the greatness of their depravity? Why doesn't he talk about how wicked these people were and how worthy they were of judgment? Why does he just talk about ordinary, everyday things? Now, I have the advantage of thinking about this stuff all week. And I just gave you like 30 seconds to think about it. So I came up with three possibilities as to why he would mention ordinary things during notoriously evil days like Noah and Lot. Now, this is my speculation, but this is what I think these are possibilities. First, he mentions ordinary activities to prevents his audience from having a false sense of security. Imagine his audience saying, well, I'm not violent as they were in Noah's day, so this doesn't apply to me. Well, I'm not sexually perverse as they were in Lot's day, so this doesn't apply to me. So I will be okay on that day when the Son of Man returns, because Noah's day and Lot's day were horribly wicked, and I'm not that kind of person. So he points to the ordinariness of the ordinary things that they were doing so that ordinary people like you and me might take notice of that and say, hmm, I do some of those things. My second theory as to why Jesus uses such ordinary activities is when a person makes these ordinary things their entire purpose for living, they sin as they practice them. In other words, these things are not sinful in and of themselves, eating, drinking, buying, selling, marrying, etc. But if these things become the sole focus of a person's life, which is the case for billions of people on this planet, while at the same time rejecting God as their sole purpose for life, all of these non-sinful things become exceedingly sinful. They're done selfishly, they're done carnally, they're done with you at the center and not God at the center. They are done without any thought at all about their Creator and what He might require of them. It is enjoying the good things that God has given all the while ignoring the gift giver. It's the wickedness of purposefully and intentionally living apart from God's will for you. That's my second thought on that. My third one, third reason Jesus chooses ordinary things, at least my third theory is, because the point of the entire teaching is to stress the unexpected nature of the kingdom. People will be going about their lives, eating, drinking, buying, selling, marrying, and the judgment is going to cascade upon them in such an immediate and surprising way as they go. You go to work, Got to make a run to Costco on your lunch break. Meeting a friend for dinner. Wife wants you to take her to some events. 
And all of a sudden, the day of the Lord has come. And it's game over. And so the warning is one of urgency and finality. There will be no time to grab your belongings or fall on your knees in repentance. There will be no time to get your affairs in order. There will be no time to make things right. It will be too late. The judgment of God is here. The day of the Lord has come. And all of those prophecies from the Old Testament are coming to pass in this one event. The return of the Son of Man. A great day and a terrible day. What will happen on that day? One word. Separation. It will be a day of separation. Separating the wheat from the chaff. Separating the sheep from the goats. Separating the righteous from the wicked. Separating those who submit to the king and those who refuse the king. And this is what Jesus goes on to describe. Verse 34. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Now, if you have the King James Version, you'll have a verse 36. If you don't, it'll look like verse 36 was taken out of your Bible. But it is not in the earliest manuscripts that have been found in Luke. It's found in the later manuscripts that were used to compile the King James Version. And so I'm going to add it in here anyway. It does not change the meaning of the passage, but it says two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. This is what it says in Matthew 24. It was probably a scribe who imported it accidentally from memory. Verse 37, and they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So the work that Jesus comes to do is a work of separation. In fact, this kind of separation has begun with his first coming. When Jesus calls men and women and children to follow him, what is happening spiritually is a separation and a separation with relational consequences. He calls you to be part of his kingdom in the midst of this kingdom of the world, which is passing away. And so he is separating you out from that. And that can damage relationships. Maybe you remember this back in Luke 12, verse 51 to 53. Jesus says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So he's talking about a spiritual separation where the coming of the new birth is going to create strife in your relationships. 
because you belong to God and those loved ones that you share your life with do not. So the work of separation began with conversion as he calls people out of the world. And when Jesus comes at the end of the age, really he's just finalizing this work of separation that already exists. He's making known outwardly what was already a reality inwardly. The separation that was already present spiritually because of your allegiance to different kingdoms will then become physical and become obvious to all. Notice in verse 33, this separation will take place within a home. Verse 34, there are two in one bed, presumably a husband and wife. Maybe the wife is a believer, the husband is not, or vice versa. And Jesus comes, and what does he do? He brings separation. Or verse 35 shows how the separation takes place within the workplace. Two workers side by side, working together to finish a project. I don't, there should have been one more slide before that one, but whatever. And one is taken and the other one is left. And so the picture is when it is least expected during the ordinary events of life, this is going to happen. One commentator observed that the one in the one scene, the people are in bed, which assume, assumes it's at night, and the other is at work, which assumes it's in the day pointing to this global phenomenon that will catch people unexpectedly, regardless of where they are in the world. Now, it's not clear to me and to others whether the one taken is taken for judgment or taken for salvation. I've read both arguments the ones who think they're taken for judgment have good arguments. The one who thinks they're taken for salvation have good arguments. I don't have time to elaborate on those. I think it's taken for salvation because it seems to fit best with the illustrations. Noah was taken out of the way when God brought his wrath. Lot was taken out of the city when God brought his wrath. So it seems consistent to say that the believers will be caught up to be with Christ when God brings his wrath to the earth. But we don't want to miss the points. We don't want to get overly fascinated with all of the details and miss the big picture, which is the sudden nature of his return and the separation that's going to ensue on that day. That is what Jesus wants you to understand. There are those who will be judged and there are those who will be saved and the difference is in their relationship to this coming king. Jesus is bringing his kingdom and you will either be in it or you will be cast out of it. And the picture of those cast out is one of carnage. Verse 37, the disciples said to him, Where, Lord? 
And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Where will this take place? Where will this be? And Jesus gives this very mysterious and dark image to describe what is coming upon the world. Probably proverbial. He says, you'll see it. It'll be as obvious as when the vultures are circling overhead when there's a dead body. So I ask you this evening, are you prepared for that day? Are you prepared to meet the King of Kings? Or are you so consumed with the affairs of this life that that day will come upon you and take you by surprise? Will it be a day of joy at the King's return? Or will it be a a day of great terror because of the judgment he brings. Very sobering to think about, isn't it? There are some hard teachings of Jesus. And you don't realize how many until you work your way through a gospel. These are very big and weighty things. But he puts this in there for our good. And I will leave you with this exhortation that comes from the Apostle Peter that he gives to his audience about this same future event. And if you are in Christ today, this is what you should consider as we wait for this day. 2 Peter 3, 10 and 11. Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Let us pray. Our Lord, these are fearful things. These are terrifying things. And yet, Lord, if we are in Christ, if we have redemption, if Christ has been our substitute, if we are born of the Spirit of God, as terrible as that day will be, it will be a day of rejoicing for your people. Death will be no more. Suffering will be no more. Those who hate God will be no more. Those who rise up in defiance of truth will be no more. And so, Lord, as we look forward to that day with fear and trembling, may we also, as your people, look to that day with great joy and anticipation. If there are any here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray by faith they would receive him now that they would prepare for that great and terrible day by inviting Christ in, that they might be forgiven, that they might be reconciled to God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.